0: I have a Bible this morning. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. It's good to have so many visitors here this morning. Uh, Many of you here for the service we just had with these kids and uh, I want to especially welcome you guys and tell you that we are in in the early stages of a series through John's letters in the New Testament. And we've started with 1 John. It's the longest of his letters, the most meaty of his letters and sets the tone for what comes through in all three of the letters that John wrote. And We are now in the middle of chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. One of the things we've been saying about this letter, as we've begun to unpack it, is that it it seems pretty clear to not just us, but to to people who have been studying this letter for hundreds and thousands of years, that what John is trying to do is recover something that had been lost in the life of an early congregation he probably founded himself and had been, had, had been away from for a time that in, the, in his absence some other teachers had come in had begun teaching other versions of what it is to follow Jesus and to know him and, and, and John is writing to them now to try to correct their, their, their mistaken impressions of what it is to know Jesus he's trying to give them a guide to what genuine Christianity looks like Who, how can you tell if you really know him so the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been pointing to some of the marks that John gives us. He says, pay attention to what they say about who Jesus is. And he's given us some of the most important things to affirm about Jesus and what we need from him, especially the passage we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter two. He's also talked about the importance of obedience, that if you really know Jesus, if you're, if you're friends with Jesus, so that who he is and what he loves begins to affect who you are and what you love, then what that will look like The way that will show up is in obedience to Him, because to know Him is to is to want what He wants. To know Him is to trust what He commands. To be friends with Him is to lean into and not away from what He tells you is best for your life. So we talked about the importance of obedience, but so far, we actually haven't seen any specific example about what obedience should look like. We haven't seen any specific command. Commands have been referred to, but we we don't know what they are yet. And in the passage we've come through this morning, we get what will be John's main theme for the rest of the letter. The main sign that a person is obeying Jesus, and therefore the main sign that that person knows Jesus, has a friendship with him, has a relationship that is affecting how that person lives in the world, what that person loves in the world. The main sign is their love for other people. Genuine Christianity shows up more clearly than anywhere else in love. For other people. Because when you know Jesus, you'll obey him, and what he's commanded us, one way to summarize it all, is to love one another. That theme comes out in the passage we're going to look at briefly this morning, and then it gets unpacked throughout the rest of the letter. So it's so to considered today almost a kind of teaser for what's still to come in the rest of the series. But I do want us to spend the time that we have this morning making sure it's clear to us why love It's so important as a mark of genuine Christianity. Why is this what it looks like for somebody to know God? Because that's what John wants us to see from this passage. I want to begin by reading the few verses that we're going to look at together this morning. We're going to look at verses 7 to 11 of chapter 2. And and as I prepare to read, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read what, what John has written to us. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes this is god's word you can be seated I want to do two simple things this morning to help us get ready for this theme and what it's going to mean in our study of this letter. I want us to consider how the old command became new. Did you notice that language came up several times in these verses? How did an old command become new? And then how we can embrace the new command. Those are the two things I want to do. Understand what this command is. What's new about an old command? And then make sure that we point ahead to how we can embrace this command that's been put in front of us. So how did the old command become new? Did you notice that that John seems to be kind of talking back to himself, at least in the first couple of verses that we read, almost like he's, he's carrying on a conversation all by himself. He's writing, so, so, so the context here is that he's writing to tell them what it looks like to walk as Jesus walked. In verse six, just before what we read, he said that whoever says he abides in Jesus, whoever's connected to Jesus, living a life in relationship with Jesus, is gonna wanna walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And that begs the question, how did Jesus walk? What does it look like to abide in him and then therefore to to walk in the way that he walked? But then he insists first that what he's writing to them isn't new, it's old. They've heard it from the beginning, he says in verse 7. And there's no mystery here about what he means, because, partly because of what he's about to say a couple verses later, but also because he uses almost this exact phrase in chapter 3, the next chapter, and he tells us what the command is. So in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. All right, that's a, that's a clue that he's about to fill in the gap here left in verse 7. What's the command you heard from the beginning? What's the message you heard from the beginning? Verse 11 of chapter 3 says that we should love one another. So what he's writing to them is to tell them to love one another. And that's not new, that's old. Old because they heard it from the beginning when they were first told about Jesus and called to follow him, they were told to love one another. Old because even before that, back in Jesus' own life and ministry, Jesus went around telling people to love one another. In fact, in John chapter 13 in John's gospel, he says that the way people will know you're my disciples is if you love one another. They're gonna look at you, they're gonna see you loving one another and they'll know, okay, they're with Jesus. But it wasn't even new when Jesus was talking about it. Because Jesus himself says, another part of his teaching, that that the the law is summed up in the command to love God above all and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says that in Matthew 22, quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. So the command to love one another is not new. It's old. It's been around. But then did you notice that John's like talking right back to himself in verse 8? Like, Look, this is not new. I'm not creating anything novel here just handing on what was delivered to me and delivered to the guy before me and before me and so on and so on. But at the same time, verse 8 says, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So what's that about? What's new about it? How'd the old command to love one another become the new command of Jesus' followers? In verse 8, John gives us the reason. It's a new commandment I'm writing to you, he says, because, okay, there's our clue, Here's what's new about it. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The old command has become new because now the light is shining and the darkness is passing away. So what does he mean there? I think he means that when Jesus came into the world, he came as light in the darkness. The beginning of John's gospel says as much. And that when Jesus came into the world, the old command became new. And I think what became new about that old command when Jesus came into the world as the light that shines in the darkness, what became new about that old command is that in Christ, we have a radically new illustration of love a clearer model of what it means to love other people than we've ever had before. It's what Jesus meant back in John's gospel, chapter 13, when he says, you should love one another even as I have loved you. And it's what John is pointing to in the verses just before ours. He says, if you abide in him, you'll walk in the way in which he walked. Jesus' life showed us something we couldn't have seen before. And now John is tying what Jesus showed us in his life to our command to love other people. What's new about that old command is that now we know what it means. We have a clearer picture of it than we ever could have had before. And when you know Jesus, when you abide in him, when his life infuses with yours, you'll want to walk in the same way that he walked. And that's going to mean wanting to love other people in the way that he loved you. The old command became new and light came into the world, when light shone into darkness to expose what love really looks like and to make it possible for us to see and to follow and to, to emulate him. So think of Jesus as this bright, shining neon line dividing all of history. There is a before him and there is an after him. And the after him is a period of light that wasn't available before, showing us truth and beauty and calling us to walk in it. So the big question is, I think, what is this model that Jesus had given us? What light did he shine on us? What have we seen in him that changes how we are called to love one another, that helps us see what it would mean to love one another? What's this light that he brought? Last week, we said a lot more. About this, I'm going to refer you to some audio that's on the website. If you, if you weren't with us last week, and get a lot more detail uh, coming from the first couple of verses in John chapter 2. It's, a, it's all about Jesus and his beauty as a savior for people who have no other, other, other hope, no other place to turn than him. Jesus as an advocate for those who are justly condemned before, before uh, God's law. Jesus as a sacrifice that perfectly wipes clean the sin of any person who ever will look to him in faith. We talked a lot about that last week. I won't go over all of that ground. I just want to summarize it briefly so that you can see what we're about to see. How has Jesus loved us? What light has He shown on our command to love one another? Well, here's how. John and, and all the scriptures picture us as the people who walk in darkness. The darkness of sin, where we turn inward on ourselves and trust ourselves more than what God has said. Where we reject his care and his wisdom for our own. The darkness of selfishness. Where we look on other people not as opportunities to serve and to invest. But as as resources to use for our purposes. To get what we want from them and from life. The darkness of ignorance. Where we're blind to what makes for a truly meaningful life. Wandering around in search of purpose and joy looking for happiness in all the wrong places, chasing empty promises like a carrot on a stick that we never catch up to. He saw us in our sin and our sorrow, in our darkness, knowing that we were living with the consequences of what we had chosen for ourselves when we chose our way over his, knowing that we were getting exactly what we deserved. And what did he do with us? not what we probably would have done. So we maybe would have pointed a finger, wagged it a little bit, and said, I told you so. We might have pointed that finger and said, you should have been more like me. But he took on flesh and became like us. Maybe we would have inwardly congratulated ourselves that we weren't like you. I don't have your problems. But he became one of us and took our problems on as his own when they weren't his to begin with. Maybe at best, I would be like a neutral observer, studying some natural phenomenon through the distance of a telephoto lens. Isn't that interesting how these people have chosen to live? But he entered in. He identified with us. He made himself our rescuer. What he did, like I said before, is summarized in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 here. If anyone sins, or as we might read from the context, when we sin, because everybody does, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he looked at us standing under the judgment we deserved, and he chose to stand with us and for us so that his record, his wisdom, his righteousness becomes ours so that we don't stand alone in our sin. He is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2 says. It's not just that. He doesn't have to work his magic through some sort of trick of, of careful legal speaking. He doesn't have to find some sort of loophole to get us off. He just goes ahead and absorbs the full penalty for what we own. Our shame is not false. We deserve the worst that we imagine for ourselves and then some in our sin. But Jesus hasn't shrunk back from any of it. He sees it all even more clear than we, than we do. And in his death, a death that he did not deserve, he has taken it all. Think of it as a cup that he has drank down to the last drop, turned over that cup, slams it down on the ground and says, it's finished. He is the propitiation for our sins and, and his, what he has done can cover the sins of everybody in the whole world. You better believe it can cover yours. These are legal terms. They describe God looking on us, suffering the penalties we brought in our own lives and saying, I'll take them. That's how he loved us. That's what he gives to those who don't deserve it. That's the light that's already shining as the darkness passes away. And if you abide in him, if you really know him and he's your friend, you're sharing your life with his life, When you really know him through this unthinkable act of love for sinners like you and me, then what is going to happen is that you're going to start to walk as he walked. You're going to start to internalize something of his love, and it'll start shaping the way you love others. What John has told us is that when you know him, you obey him. That was the point of last week's section. When you know him, when you know his love, When you know you can trust him, you do what he wants. You want what he wants. You trust what he commands. So what does that look like? Now John's telling us. Here's what it looks like to obey. And what I want to do with the minutes that we have left is talk about how we can embrace this new commandment. A commandment that's old, but that's just gotten a radically new illustration of what it means. How can we love other people in the way that Jesus has loved us? John's definitely laying out love as our responsibility. In verse nine, he says, whoever says he's in the light, this new light that's already shining, but still hates his brother, well, that person's still in darkness. This light amounts to love. The darkness is, is where hate thrives. Whoever loves his brother, verse 10 says, abides in the light. In him, there's no cause for stumbling. That's a person who knows the light that's already shining. That light is in his life now. But verse 11 comes back again. Whoever hates his brother, he's still in the darkness. So you can see love for one another. That's the dividing line between light and darkness. So if if we want to walk in the light, if we want to embrace the newness of this old command, if we want to see what Jesus has done and begin to practice it in our own lives, what would that actually look like? What, in other words, do we want to be praying that God's love will produce in us as we trust in him more and more. I want to get a little more specific about what this kind of light-reflecting love could look like. John loves contrasts. There's all, this letter's all full of contrasts. I'm going to use one of my own this morning. This is just one example, okay? Just one pulled from the immediate context from what was just said right before the passage we're talking about this morning. There are a lot of other ways we could unpack what it looks like. We, we will do some of that in the series as we move forward. Just for this morning, I just want to point you to one very specific way that that, that our love for others could reflect Jesus' love for us. I want to describe it as a contrast between advocates and judges. We'll love each other as Jesus has loved us when we see other people's flaws and respond to those flaws as their advocate, not as their judge. Now, here's what I mean. I I am hardly the first person to tell you that we shouldn't judge one another. There is probably no more staunchly held moral conviction in America today than that we shouldn't judge one another, that we should impose our own convictions on other people or question another person's moral convictions. That's not exactly what I mean when I say we shouldn't come at one another as judges. I'm definitely not saying that we should pretend like everything is fine, like everyone's doing exactly what they should, I mean, in in fact, churches, in in local churches, what we assume is that we're not what we should be, that we actually aren't okay. That's why we need local churches to be around us. We have to acknowledge we aren't what we should be. Otherwise, it makes no sense to be part of the church. We're a society of people who need help. So we belong to this community because we know that and we know we need each other to see ourselves clearly and to help us grow. And, and, And so I'm not saying... That not being a judge towards somebody means not ever acknowledging anything that isn't what it should be. Now, that would shut down a huge part of what our church is for. What I'm talking about is posture a posture of our hearts towards the weaknesses that we see in others, or their blindness to things that they haven't recognized yet, or their failure, their sin. I'm talking about a posture towards problems that we recognize in another person or in our church or on the whole. Sometimes the Bible warns against judging other people because to be a judge, you're you're kind of taking on a position as if you see everything you need to, to know what's best here. And the Bible warns us against that. That's arrogant. Humility means recognizing, I don't see everything I need to to know exactly what's best for you. But that's not the point that that, that I'm trying to make here. I... uh, Here I'm talking about when a flaw is clear, when it's unmistakable, then coming at someone as an advocate rather than as a judge, having a posture that is for them, that wants to help them, rather than to dismiss, reject, or simply be frustrated with them, is a key mark of someone who knows the God who chose to be our advocate, who chose to take the burden of our sins on himself. Okay? Let me me, me tease this out a little bit more. Let me me describe a little bit more about what a posture of a judge would look like towards somebody else's flaws versus the posture of an advocate. The posture of a judge sees something wrong in you and says, what's wrong with you is that you're not more like me. You should care as much as I do about the things that really matter, about engaging your Bible maybe or serving people in need, or spending money on things other than yourself, or reaching out to people who are unengaged, or fighting for sexual purity. You should care more about the things that I care about. You should be more like me. The posture of a judge says you shouldn't be so angry, or so apathetic, or so unforgiving, or so self-absorbed, or so prone to gossip, or whatever else you might be passionate about. The judge says you should be different. The judge means, probably, you should be more like me. The judge is guilty of what John is calling hatred in these verses. He says, "When it, whoever hates his brother is still in the darkness. And I think we normally get ourselves off the hook of that because we don't think of ourselves as hating anybody. But we're, we're way more guilty about, of that than, than we may realize. What he means is not this kind of antipathy that wants to really hurt or cut somebody, but a detachment from somebody. That treats them as something you want to isolate yourself from, maybe insulate yourself from. It's a lot more like what Jesus says when he in, in, in Luke's gospel, chapter six, he predicts to his disciples the world is gonna hate you, just like it hated me. And then he says that what he means by this hatred is that the world's gonna dismiss you, and they're gonna reject you, they're gonna exclude you as wrong. To hate, in other words, in, in the sense that John means, is more than just like really intense negative feelings towards somebody. It's to say that you want no part of them. It's to stay back from them, from what's wrong in them, to protect yourself from them. That's what it is, to hate someone. As one commentator puts it, whenever a brother has a need and one does not help him, then one has despised and in fact hated his brother. The judge's posture towards flaws is one of frustration, disappointment. The advocate's posture towards somebody else's flaws is one of motivation. Motivation to help, to get in there, to do what you can, to help them move into a better place. One of my favorite sections of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book called The Cost of Discipleship, which one of my favorite sections is, is where he's talking in categories like this about the danger of judging other people as a Christian who's been forgiven so much by Jesus. Here's what, here's what Bonhoeffer says. I think this is beautiful. When we judge, we encounter other people from the distance of observation and reflection. Think of yourself as, as holding them out here, away from, your, away from yourself, safe distance, turning them every which way to make sure you can see all the different dimensions of their flaws, but keeping them out here. When we judge, we encounter people from distance from observation and reflection but bonhoeffer continues love does not allot the time and the space to do that for those who love he says other people can never become an object for spectators to observe instead they are always a living claim on my love and my service to love someone in the way that john means here is to treat other people even in their flaws as having a living claim on everything at your disposal. You see what he's getting at? When we perceive other people's flaws as a judge, then we're detached from them. We're just observing something as, as if under a microscope. Judges stand back and stand over other people. But love won't allow that kind of detachment. Love won't let that person stay other Than you. not the kind of love that Jesus has shown us that Jesus has shed abroad in our hearts like a light in the darkness not that kind of love love as Christ is love turns us into an advocate because Christ was an advocate our our family really enjoys some of these nature documentaries like uh, Planet Earth or Blue Planet a lot of the stuff that the BBC puts out we spend a lot of time watching these Oh, they're, they're amazing. Blue Planet 2 just came out in America last week, started releasing weekly, another episode last night, highly recommended. Uh, one of the downsides of watching these nature documentaries is that a lot of cute animals die, <laughs> brutally. And the naturalists who study these animals, I mean, I'm not going to speak into their heart motives. I don't know what they're feeling as they watch a baby elephant die of thirst. That's, a, that's in one scene while they stand there and videotape it or like watch a water buffalo fight five lions off of his back by himself while they stand there and videotape it i'm not going to impugn their motives they're scientists they're just studying what they study but there's a detachment there right there's a safety from the problems that they're observing that that's buffered by that lens that they watch through we're just observers There's a big difference between their posture towards the plight of the animal world and my wife's posture toward the plight of the animal world. A couple of years ago, it's probably been several years now, I don't remember when this was. We were in a different home than we live in now. We had this great window looking out over a backyard where there was a lot of birds and rabbits, tons of them. There was also a hawk that lived in a tree in a yard next to ours. There was this one time we were watching out the window, from our kitchen and we saw this hawk sitting in a tree right on the edge of the yard and a bunny right in the middle of the yard looking at the hawk frozen not moving at all that hawk is just sitting there i don't know why he didn't pounce right away but he was just sitting there bunny frozen looking up at him he knew exactly what this meant and i'm just kind of like bbc planet earth watching this whole thing what's this gonna go how's this gonna go down and the next thing I know, Lindsay is gone. She is gone. She comes running around the, the, the driveway into the backyard, screaming, waving her hands. And it's like the bunny knew exactly what to do with that. As soon as the hawk takes a look at Lindsay, the bunny talk, takes off into the woods. She saved his life. <laughs> Listen to that. Oh, I was laughing for it. It, it was heroic. It was heroic. There, there's a difference, though. I think mean, You can see my point, hopefully. There's a difference between the way that, that a naturalist looking through a lens of a camera at the flaws or problems of somebody else safely removed in whatever vehicle they're driving in to protect them from the threats that are out there and, and, and what love will do to you when you see someone in need or hurting or hurting you even. When Jesus' love has captured your heart, when you know Him as a friend, when you love what He loves and want what He wants, and trust His command to you to love others even if it hurts you, then you don't have the space to just hold it out there and look at it from a distance, to turn it every which way, and spend time just breaking down how many ways this person has hurt you. You don't have that kind of space. You have to you have to get in there with them because their problems are hurting you too not just the fact that their problems are against you, but because it hurts you that they're, that they're suffering, that they're struggling. You can't approach them as a judge. You have to be an advocate. When we recognize Jesus' love for us, we know that there is no standard that anyone else has broken that we haven't broken to. There is no righteousness in us that's not equally offered to anyone else in Jesus. And that means we don't approach people's flaws the way we used to. The light is already shining. The darkness is passing away. The judge sees a flaw and says, be different. The advocate sees the same flaw. The lover sees that flaw and says, how can I help? Enters in, takes on the problem. Absorbs what it costs, seeks redemption as the end goal, because the light shines, and this is how we walk in it. Father, I pray that you would give us, through your Spirit, work in the truth of your gospel into our hearts. Give us the, the power that we need to love each other in this way. We want our church, our shared life together, to, to, to be marked by this kind of light. We want people to see it and to see the light shining from it, from the way that we treat each other because we want you to get glory and we want to know the happiness that comes from loving each other like this. So I pray that you would overcome all the resistance that each of us brings to this project, all the selfishness that holds us back and holds us down, that you would overcome it because Jesus has come for us, has lived, has died, has risen for us, is praying for us right now as our advocate in your ear, I pray that you would hear his prayers and grant him what he asks of you, to make us one as you are one, to share amongst us the love that you have known in your own self between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity, so that when people see us, they see people who know this God. If you don't do this work, it won't happen. We are at your mercy, turning to you again right now. In Jesus' name, amen.